Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. I really am so excited that you've decided to join us for this service. You know, people come to church or watch a church service online for lots of reasons. I don't know why you decided to join us today, but here's something I do know. God is at work in your life and he's brought you here to this place in this moment to accomplish his purposes. Since people grow here, you will leave changed. I trust his work in your life. So can you. I'm Chris Voigt, and I lead the pastoral team here at Dayspring. We have a fantastic team who work tirelessly to help people grow. We love helping you discover the best path forward to deepening your spiritual roots, whether you are here in the room or watching online, live or on demand at some point in the future. If you are visiting Dayspring today, we want you to know that we are a come-as-you-are kind of church. We don't have any perfect people here. We are all in process, working through our junk, and sometimes that is a messy process. So if you can embrace our mess, we'll embrace yours, and together we'll let God work to clean it all up. And if you're just checking out Jesus and church, this is a safe place to bring your questions and doubts. We're all on a journey. And wherever you are on your journey, welcome. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church, by checking out our Facebook page, or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your home church, or if you just have questions, let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find study questions by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. And now, Let's join our service. Well, back when I was a kid uh, who walked uphill both ways in the snow to school, we had it hard. Life was really rough. Uh, our home had only one TV. I think it was a whopping 13-inch RCA with 12 channels, 2 through 13. Of those 12 channels, I think we actually only got about six stations. You know, uh, I still remember my parents telling us kids to not sit so close to the TV. Anyone else? Yeah. Uh, where else were we going to sit? They had the good seats in the house and the screen was the size of the thimble. Uh, my, when my dad wanted to change the channel or TV volume, he spoke a command to the remote, just like uh, we might speak to Siri or Alexa today. And then I would get up and go to the, walk to the TV to change the channel or the volume. Another good reason to sit close to the TV, if you ask me. <laughs> when we finally upgraded, we, we did have a wired remote. But that was usually more work than it was worth, especially when someone yanked it out of the TV when they, were, when they tripped over it as they walked across the living room. Uh, initially, we had no VCR. Uh, if you, and for those of you who are too young to know what a VCR are, is, <laughs> sorry, you're going to have to do some research on your own. But if you, if you had to go to the bathroom or refresh your popcorn, you waited for the commercial. Uh, in our house, someone usually stayed in the living room to shout, it's on! That way, nobody would miss anything. And if you missed the show the first time, 
the first time that it aired, you had to wait until it magically was rerun at some point in the future, which made the weekly recap of what happened last week incredibly important so that you would know what you had missed. It's so different today. Now we stream everything on demand and we binge watch entire seasons at a time. I don't know about you, but I think the best invention in all of this is the skip recap button that shows up on Netflix, Amazon Prime, and most of the other streaming services in one form or another. I don't, I, I know what happened previously on whatever show. I just watched it 13 seconds ago. My memory isn't that bad yet. Well, here we are at the end of the Gospel of John, and it's time for a recap. For those of you watching online or on demand later, sorry, no skip recap button on this one. Uh, John was an old man when he wrote his gospel. Not old like 30, like you teenagers think of old, but old like probably in his 90s old. Uh, he had a lot of time to reflect on his time with Jesus so many years ago, and He'd been given a glimpse of the future and eternity, which he had recorded in Revelation, which gave him an interesting perspective. Standing on the threshold of his own entrance into eternity, he had one final thing to leave with us. No small thing, of course, just the story of Jesus as he experienced it face to face as one of the disciples. The story of Jesus, fully God and fully flesh and blood man who moved heaven and earth to restore the relationship with you and me, the relationship that we had broken. Love moved him to do what we could never do to pay the penalty for our sin, making life with God possible once again, as it had been back in the beginning with Adam and Eve. This Jesus was a God worth believing in, a God worth surrender, uh, worthy of changing your life for. Everything changed in this moment in history. And as we finish out John's gospel today, we'll highlight some of those changes. Now, when we left the service last week, Jesus was still in the grave. Uh, he was placed there by two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, two men who up to this point in time had been secret followers of Jesus. They are the foreshadowing of change. Their decision to bury Jesus outed them as Jesus followers. And it was quite risky on their part, if you think about it. Not one of Jesus' followers expected Jesus to come back to life. They were confused, discouraged, and disappointed in how everything had turned out. They were afraid for their lives, fully expecting the Jewish leaders to root out Jesus' followers and deal with them the same way that they had him. The Jewish leaders wanted everything Jesus to just go away so that they could return to life as they knew it. Joe and Nick most logically should have stayed silent. That way, there would be no risk in identifying themselves with someone who was just executed for sedition and blasphemy. Even, even if their lives didn't become targets, their reputations were certainly on the line. And we don't know why they risked it all when, for all they knew, there was no upside, only downside to come. But something changed. 
Now, they, they followed the Jewish custom and buried Jesus in a new tomb. Uh, Pilate had sealed the tomb with the seal of Rome and placed it under guard. Now, this tells you something about me. Uh, I've seen too many spy movies where someone was killed only to come back to life in the body bag because they were injected with some toxin that slowed their heart down to mimic death long enough to fool their enemy. So I can understand the concern of the Jewish council that Jesus' followers would steal the body and then claim he had come back to life. And John knew that one of the heresies that had wormed its way into the church was that Jesus hadn't actually died. Instead, he just lapsed into a coma, was placed in the tomb unconscious, and then in the coolness of the tomb, revived, pushed aside the stone, and slipped past the guards in the, into the night before claiming to, be have, to have been raised from the dead. Now, we live our lives fairly insulated from death. Uh, someone else takes care of the bury someone's burials for us. But that wouldn't have been true for Joseph and Nicodemus. They knew what death looked like. At that time, people prepared their own dead for burial. By the age of 30, most everyone had seen dozens of corpses up close and personal. Someone might be able to fool us, but not them. Joe and Nick knew that Jesus was dead. It's more than a little ironic that the people who would have wanted Jesus to be resurrected, who had heard him tell them time and time again that he would be resurrected, didn't expect a resurrection. And the people who wanted him to stay dead prepared for a resurrection, or the, the claim of a resurrection. As Warren Wearsby points out, if his friends could not steal the body, and his enemies would not, then who would take it? So, not mostly dead, but fully dead. Jesus was laid in a tomb, as we learned last week, on Thursday before sundown, when Passover Sabbath would begin. Three days later, we pick up John's story in John chapter 20, verse 1. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. Now, John would have assumed that the church would already be familiar with the resurrection story from the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He's bringing something different to the story. Uh, when you look at all of the gospel accounts of the resurrection, you see that a group of women, at least four, but maybe more, came separately to complete the burial process uh, begun by Joe and Nick. And they arrived around the same time, discovered the, the empty tomb, and were told by the angels of Jesus', of Jesus resurrection. They were instructed to let everyone know. So they scattered though some of them just went home and stayed silent. But not Mary Magdalene. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, that is the disciple John. Uh, she said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Now it's interesting that she phrases it like that. They have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. We know from the other Gospels that the women were told that Jesus had risen from the dead. Uh, he but it clearly hadn't sunk in. And it also illustrates that none of his followers expected resurrection. Even when told by angels 
although we don't know how angelic they appeared. They were singularly focused on a dead body missing, not a living Savior resurrected. It is of great significance that it was women who carried the news about Jesus to the disciples. At that time in the Jewish community, the testimony of women wasn't held in high regard. They were unreliable witnesses. The rabbis had a saying about women that went, it's better that the words of the law, that is God's word, it's better that the words of the law be burned than be delivered to a woman. That God chose women to both receive and share the news of the risen Savior signifies another change in this passage. So Mary, sucking air, bangs on the door and relays the news to Peter and John. And then Peter and the other disciples started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the, empty, reached the tomb first. And Mary having already made the trip with no evidence that she was a marathon runner in tip-top shape, follows behind, fighting shin splints and a rock in her sandal. John stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He just barrels past John, more than a little irritated that he's come in second, and John's blocking the way. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there, while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Now, you might remember that not long before this moment, they had stood outside another tomb as Jesus called forth Lazarus. Lazarus came out of the tomb with his burial linens still wrapped around him. Jesus were left behind, symbolic that while Lazarus would need his again someday, Jesus never would. In Greek, there are six verbs that are generally translated as to see, uh, each with a different nuance and usage. And although here the translators have substituted other words, uh, so in, in John verse 5, John stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings. That saw means that he observed the linen wrappings without necessarily understand, understanding what they meant. Like, what? Then Peter barges uh, past John in verse 6. He noticed the linen wrappings, meaning that he examined them for the purpose of investigation. He was curious about their condition. By the way, someone stealing the body would have taken them with the body or would have at least unwrapped the body and left the linens in a pile on the floor. The sense that we get is that other than the linen that would have covered his head, uh, which was folded and laid aside, the rest were laying as they would have been if a body had still been in them and then just disappeared. And then John, the disciple who had reached the tomb first, also went in and he saw, meaning that it finally clicked. He had an aha moment. He perceived with understanding and believed. For until, they, until then, they hadn't understood the scriptures that said that Jesus must rise from the dead. Then they went home. Now, to be fair to the disciples, they didn't understand the necessity of a resurrection. 
while the Old Testament certainly alluded to his rising from the dead, their scholars at that time struggled to understand how their Messiah could suffer and die and yet still overcome their enemies before leading them to prosperity and becoming a worldwide empire like Rome had never seen. One theory suggested the messianic prophecies foretold of two people, one who would sacrifice his life and the other who would reign in his place. So this seeming contradiction puzzled everyone until John saw. It was only then that it clicked for him. And then they returned home, but not Mary. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. Now, Mark's gospel tells us that the women looked in the tomb, saw the angels, and were told to go tell the others. Here, John is clearly showing us that, that they appeared after the telling of the others. Uh, when you read the resurrection accounts of all four Gospels, you get a sense of the chaos of the moment. Everyone's trying to figure out and put the pieces together uh, of the whole story. So here, John and Peter returned home, but at some point, Jesus appeared to Peter. But it's difficult to determine when. The other women, including Mary, had already been sent on a mission by the angels. And then here, Mary's at the tomb alone, weeping. And this is the loud lamentation that's so characteristic of traditional Jewish mourning. These aren't quiet tears. This looks like it could be the second appearance of the two white-robed angels. But we don't really know. And it seems as if they don't answer her question. Uh, maybe there is an awkward silence as the angels, knowing she is about to meet Jesus behind her, don't give away the punchline or steal his thunder. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which is Hebrew for teacher. Now, there are some who have suggested that Jesus somehow altered his appearance, which is why she didn't recognize him at first. But it's not likely given the context. I think it's more likely that she turns around. Maybe she sent someone beside, but behind her or maybe heard a noise. And probably looking down at the ground as she gets her footing, she sees maybe legs and just makes an assumption. She's remembering Jesus as she last saw him, battered and broken. And you know, sometimes uh, when I see someone out of context, it takes me a minute to place where I know them from. It could be the same thing here. When she realizes it is Jesus who has spoken to her, uh, she calls him Rabboni. Rabbi and Rabboni were at the time equivalent terms of respect. In later years, the Jews recognized three levels of teachers. Rab, the lowest, Rabbi, and then Rabboni, the highest. 
clearly she is giving him the highest respect that, he, that she can offer. And f- for her, it takes his voice to make it click. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I have, haven't yet ascended to the Father, but go find my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now, this isn't a gentle side hug of welcome, you know, like, hey, it's good to see you again, Jesus. She has fully embraced him. She is clinging to him and won't let go, almost like she's afraid to let go, like he'll suddenly be gone again. There's no need to panic. She'll see him again. But in reassuring her, Jesus indicates another change. It won't be long before he returns to heaven. And when he does, their relationship with him will change from face to face to faith. And no longer will he be the suffering servant. Affliction and persecution are a thing of the past. He's accomplished his assignment, paid the debt for our sin as he took our wrath on our behalf. He will no longer be the sacrificial lamb, but the conquering king, the son of God, king of Israel, savior of the world. Mary obeys Jesus. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I've seen the Lord. And then she gave them his message. And a few hours later, after he had walked to Emmaus with, the, with two Christ followers, John records that Sunday evening the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Now, his appearance was so inexplicable that they thought he was a ghost. But John wanted us to understand the nature, the different nature of Christ's resurrected body. When Lazarus was resurrected by Jesus, he lived with the same limitations that he had had before he had died. He was still susceptible to sickness and disease, and he would eventually die again. But the resurrection of Jesus was profoundly different. Though his body was still completely human, it also possessed supernatural abilities. He was raised to a new kind of life, never to die again. We should note that Mary embraced Jesus, accepting him as he presented himself immediately and without question. This group of followers needed more evidence. But once their fear was replaced by joy, Jesus recommissioned them and reminded them of his promise of the Holy Spirit. Again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, his breathing on them illustrates his promise of the Holy Spirit and symbolically recalls the act of creation even as he is launching them into a new aspect of creation. And it also is symbolic of Ezekiel uh, chapter 37, where the dry bones uh, become living people again. Here, it is all symbolic because the Holy Spirit wouldn't actually come until Pentecost 40 days later. Much has been written about this next verse. Uh, If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. 
Uh, There are some who believe that this verse and a couple of corresponding ones in Matthew grants not only those in, in the room, but us as well, apostolic authority to be Christ's proxy on earth. Meaning that we have been given the authority to forgive sins on Christ's behalf. But the structure of the original language indicates that this action was already taken by God. Jesus did that on the cross, but he did give us the authority to assure someone who believes and responds to Christ that their sins have been forgiven. Uh, One of the uh, 11 remaining disciples, uh, Thomas, was absent in this moment. Uh, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we have seen the Lord. But he, he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands. Put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. Eight days later, the disciples were together again. And this time, Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. And look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told him, You believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Now, we've come to call him Doubting Thomas. But it might be more accurate to describe him as pessimistic or melancholy Thomas. Uh, We only have two recorded statements from him in the Gospels. In John 11, he says, Let us also go so that we may die with him. And in John 14, he's the one who responds to Jesus saying, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? So his response is in line with his personality. He wanted concrete proof, but he probably wasn't to satisfy doubt, but to overcome hopelessness. Laced through these verses is the word and theme of peace. Beginning next week, we're going to take a look at peace for a few weeks. So I won't dive into this now other than to say the work of the cross is peace. Uh, In our sin, we declared war on, on God. But through Jesus, he would declare peace for those who believe. We carry the gospel of peace. We are to be messengers of peace. Peace is central to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we'll get to that later. In all, we have five recorded appearances of Jesus on this first day of the week. To Mary, to the other women, to Peter, to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and to the disciples minus Thomas. He would appear to them again eight days later. Uh, The book of Acts tells us that throughout the 40 days following his resurrection, Jesus appeared to the apostles from time to time and proved in many ways that he was alive. Uh, In 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us that he appeared to more than 500 people at one time. So his resurrection was well documented by more than just insiders. Uh, It was... At some point in this 40-day period, maybe even at Pentecost, when something changed in the disciples. They went from hiding in fear behind locked doors to boldly proclaiming the gospel in the streets of Jerusalem at great risk to their lives. 
a price that they were more than willing to pay. What changed? John ends this chapter with these words. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. Now, as we see here, John didn't tell us everything Jesus did. None of the gospel writers did. Uh, as you'll see at the end of your homework this week, which is chapter 21, John can't imagine the whole world could contain the books telling us everything Jesus did. And if you think about what Jesus has done in you and me and everyone since that time, we might just need a university-sized library. What John did do was build a rock-solid case for believing in Jesus, who came to earth fully God and fully man to bring us peace with God. And as we've said all along, John wrote this gospel because he wanted us to experience the same change as the disciples, the change of belief, belief that is far more than just intellectual acknowledgement, the kind of belief that changes something in us, that moves us to action. In fact, without action, it isn't belief. That kind of belief can never be satisfied with the status quo of living for self. It is the kind of belief that leads us to lay aside all other little g-gods as we pursue the only true God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That kind of belief changes the trajectory of lives. It certainly changed mine. Which leads me to this question. As you consider your life with Jesus, what's really changed? How is your life different because you believe? Maybe think about it this way. On a scale of 0 to 10, where 0 is I've never given my life to Christ in belief, to 10, which is in my belief journey, I've become practically perfect in every way like Mary Poppins. <laughs> where are you? In order for belief to be belief from John's perspective, it has to move you from action. It has to move you from zero to one and from one to two and from two to three. And while we know that on this side of heaven, none of us will ever arrive, our belief should continually reshape us more and more into men and women who think like, believe like, and act like Jesus. And since none of us is completely like him yet, that means there is always more to believe. We could also call that surrender. We also call that sanctification, the process of becoming more like Jesus. Don't confuse that with justification. Jesus is our justification. Everything he experienced on the cross was for our justification, meaning that he paid the price to satisfy our sin debt, which also means that in order to move from a zero to a one, we only need to receive the gift of life through Jesus. After that, our belief motivates us to become like Jesus, to believe, if you will, more and more, not for salvation, but because we have been saved and we want to honor his sacrifice. As we go to prayer, 
I'm going to give you a few minutes to consider that question. What's really changed in your life? On that scale, where are you? And then, what's the next step? How is Jesus calling you to deepen your belief? Let's pray. Father, give us the courage to keep believing more and more. Give us the discipline that it takes to believe more and more. Give us the hunger to become more like Jesus. For those of you in the room or who are watching online now or later who might be at a zero, all you have to do is say, yes, I believe. Yes, I believe that Jesus came and died for my sin, my brokenness. And now I want to live my life to become like Jesus. For those of us who have been at this for a while, um, that place where we need to believe probably is something that's a little harder to give up because we've been clutching onto it for so long. Father, pry it out of our hands and help us surrender it to you. May we live our lives in honor of the sacrifice of Jesus. May we look to him for every step. In his precious name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us today. Let me encourage you to download the study questions by selecting watch from the top menu of our website. Working through those questions alone or with others will help the truth of God's word find its place in your life. Please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen or you can call the church during the week. This ministry is made possible because of people like you people who believe in what God is doing through Dayspring. Your financial generosity is proof of God's work in your life. If you're just checking us out today, please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. That is the responsibility of our Dayspringers. Just enjoy the rest of your day. If you'd like to start giving, we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift. Please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen or mail a check to us at the address you'll find on our website. Also, thank you for liking and sharing and following Dayspring on whatever platform you're on. It means a lot to me when you pass on the good news of Jesus to your friends and family. Until next week, may you experience God's favor and blessing in your life.